a new place, which when it's hot, all the ants come out. Oh, no. Oh, uh, no. Australia is like, the worst place in the world. friends and welcome to so poetry um this is season oh geez i should have written this down uh season four episode two uh thank you for joining us and for listening uh because this is going to be a kick-ass episode um featuring a friend of mine uh dr sophia fritz um <laughs> uh would you like to introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about uh what you're up to and what you're doing sure um so you all have just heard Michael refer to me as a doctor, and that's because I have a PhD in clinical genetics. Um, I currently, <laughs> it's quite good. Um, I currently work as a technology strategy consultant with Deloitte. Um, I, yeah, I've kind of rushed through my life, I feel, because I'm 26 and just kind of like got a PhD, got a stable job. Like, got a mortgage, just killing it in every possible way, except the excruciating amount of debt that I'm in. Um, and, yeah, that's mostly what I'm doing with my life. From, like, a poetry perspective, I've kind of shifted from when I was an undergraduate, like, still writing and entering competitions, um, to now I mostly write it for myself um, as a kind of, like, way to decompress um, something it would theoretically have been really useful to use poetry to um, decompress a bit uh, throughout writing my PhD thesis. <laughs> I didn't do that as much <laughs> as I should have <laughs> because when you're writing a PhD thesis, you're like, yeah, this would be really helpful for my mental health. And then you just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I imagine that, well, actually, like, do you think that it would have been difficult to, um, I guess switch from the the creative process of like synthesizing and creating your thesis to the creative process of writing poetry. So I tell people it is because I don't want them to like ask <laughs> me about why I haven't been entering competitions. It's it's not really. Um, the big thing for me was like I just didn't want to deal with words anymore. Like. Mm. My thesis is 230 pages long. God like, damn. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of pictures, right? But <laughs> there's just so much writing and looking at words until words like information no longer look like real words. You're like, I don't know if I've spelled that right. Like, mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm very stressed out by the words and the order the words are in. And I don't like any of this. Um, so for me personally, I think one of the reasons that I didn't try and balance them a little bit more was just like, I did not want to look at the English language any more than I absolutely had to. Yes, I, I can. When I put together <laughs> my MFA thesis, I experienced that, which on, I'm imagining is probably on a much, much uh, less severe level than, than you did. Um, yeah. You had a bit more freedom to make the words pretty too as well. Um, yes. Yeah. Whereas I in could, a piece, I could like, format. Yeah. Well, and as a science PhD thesis, there's particular ways of having to word things, which are just like painfully obscure, but exists because of like, I don't know, tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and I hate it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I've I've I've, been, I've thought about uh, going back to school at some point for like a creative writing PhD um, and having just gleeful dreams about the fact that if I do a creative thesis, like I can do whatever the hell I want to do with it instead of it being you know like a straight up and down. This is a a thoroughly researched, uh, I don't know, like formally presented dissertation on this thing. It's like, I'm going to write a bunch of poems and put them together <laughs> and then maybe write some more poems and put them together. And then nah, I got my thesis. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the sticking points of my supervisors um, was using the word cornucopia in my introduction. And I was just like, no, I will die on this hill. Like everything else you can change. I am in love with the use of this word. I think it's very accurate. Thank mm. you. <laughs> Which I might argue is the poet in you coming out. That <laughs> that there is the very particular word that has the right connotation and the right like rhythm and flow in that particular context to be like, yes, there's no other word that that could work for this. Yeah, no, a lot of a lot of the um, stuff I handed up to my supervisors was things like the sentence sounds bad, but it communicates the meaning. Like, please fix how it sounds. <laughs> and they're always like, but it communicates the meaning, Sophia. I'm like, ah, <laughs> fine. Um, and I think like I, I've sort of I've also sort of always been a writer, um, mm. and to that extent, like formal science writing has always really frustrated me. But like throughout my PhD, like I did some science journalism. Um, as you know, I wrote a set of sonnets for one of my supervisors, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which just, okay. Uh, <laughs> that was a choice I made. Um, but I've always probably like wordsmith as wanky as it sounds, like is the closest to like where I've sort of seen my writing going. And like now I'm continuing to do that just like more, on an internal perspective with Deloitte and on a very personal perspective with my poetry. Mm. I have a book full of like trashy love poems that exists like at the bottom of one of my desk drawers, which I found while I was tidying. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to keep writing these. (laughs) I should keep this book. So I'm a disaster gay. (laughs) If, if you ever want to publish those, please keep me in mind. I don't. I'm really bad. <laughs> okay, if if you would ever like to have a very um a very interestingly made single edition copy that you can just like keep somewhere, let me know because I would I would put I would put that book together for you. I know, I know. You've um you've put a few books together for me now. Um both as presents and that book of sonnets, which looks really good and i love it and the color matches like my actual phd thesis oh yay so what what would have happened if you had turned in those sonnets as your actual like thesis oh um i wouldn't have i need a lot of practice <laughs> associated with my thesis um i think like if i my relationship with one of my supervisors would have been a lot worse had I formally included them as my thesis. And it's like, it's not good because he doesn't understand how to do constructive criticism. Oh, no. And then he just criticizes. Uh, and admittedly, like, my other supervisors are also not great at that, but they actually act like I matter to them. Um, and so it's kind of like, yeah, um, 
I know someone who did a geology thesis who included like quotes from poems and classical writing. Um, and I always find that found that quite compelling. Like um, I remember reading Warped Passages when I was growing up, which is a book about quantum physics by Lisa Randall, um, who's a string theorist and quantum physicist and pop science writer. Um, and that included like a lot of sort of quotations from poems and songs to sort of set the theme for each chapter. Um, and I did always find that quite compelling, but equally like my PhD thesis is something that's going to be read by three people. That is <laughs> my two examiners and me. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like there wasn't really value in fighting to include something that was more aesthetic than meaningful. Right. Yeah, yeah. If, if if the point of it is like information um, or like effective information conveyance, then having you know like lines of poetry or you know like lines of of other literature in there doesn't really work towards that. Or could well, be even even in the instance that it was effective information conveyance towards a larger audience than three people, like I would have probably considered it a little bit more deeply, but ultimately like a thesis exists to be examined in the sciences uh, not to be read ever again yeah um and so like i think my thesis is very well written as did one of my examiners um but it's still not something that anyone's going to pick up and leaf through for fun right so whereas like i think you know if i was writing a pop science book or any kind of like other longer publication like i would probably look at including at the very least uh more lyricism in the words I use, if not like specific poetry. Hmm. So did, I'm assuming that like parts of your thesis have turned into like academic articles. Yes. Oh God, no. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah. So a PhD thesis sometimes gets results that, ah, oh, this is difficult to, kind of explain basically my whole phd thesis is showing that a drug didn't work but it didn't work for really interesting reasons oh cool um and that's that's very difficult to get published because no one really wants to hear that things that have shown success in other sort of models and ways of testing don't actually work for one of the potential applications gotcha. um, <laughs> okay in like and you know like i went to a conference and i presented my work as a poster which is the funniest thing about sciences is that it's just poster presentations <laughs> because there's like these two bodies of thought and how your poster turns out is very dependent on what body of thought your supervisors belong to. There's one that's just like, it should be an academic paper, but on an A0 poster. And so like, it should be all the words and they should just be on the poster and it should look kind of nice, I guess. Um, and the other body of thought is what the fuck you shouldn't have that many words on the poster like it should be readable from like 10 meters away like images is great like you want to make it compelling and you want it to draw people in mm -hmm. um, yeah and it's really funny going to conferences because most people's supervisors are just like yeah all the information should be on the poster um, I don't think that my supervisors do <laughs> Um, and so again, like I was just like, cool. So I'm going to cut out all this data because I will be beside my poster and I will be able to explain it. Right. And my supervisor will be like, 
no. I'm just like, mm, it's weird. Who's going to get it sent to Office Max to print it? Oh. <laughs> um, so I always end up sort of hitting like the no man's land in the middle ground. Um, but yeah, like I, I would go to conferences and I would present my posters and people would be interested in it, but like kind of wary of it. So like the people who were most interested in my results were people who had seen similar things. And people who were like really interested in this drug as a potential treatment, like, a lot of the time wouldn't talk to me or would come and try and pick my research apart. And so it's science. Yeah. Science has this reputation for being like a cool marketplace of ideas and like everyone can come and if your evidence works and you know, you can present it, but actually like it's mostly politics, right? Like (laughs) people want new and cool and exciting things and they don't really care if you're showing that something isn't as exciting as previously thought. Huh? Hmm. uh, Yeah, I, I guess it's it's the difference between the sort of like idealized that this is what it should be, but you know scientists are people, and people will be people in you know whatever situation you put them in. So of course it's not going to be a like a free and open exchange of ideas that there be you know like people that have agendas or people that you know like you said that like they want the results to be a particular thing. So they will come to you and confront you and try to pick apart your research instead of being like, Oh, okay. I did not know that this thing would not work this particular way. That's good for me to know. And I can move on to like trying out something else. Yeah. It's been um, one of my big things actually moving across the industry. This has been very little about poetry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, we'll, we'll get like, there. We'll get there eventually. Okay. Um, it's like, people are actually quite nice to you and they're interested in your ideas. And when they ask questions, it's not to try and like pull apart what you've done, but to understand what you're doing a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when I've presented work I've done like the first few times at my new job, I would get very defensive and it doesn't really help that often like I'm the only non-man in the room, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. I get a little bit more hackles up about that. Um, and then like, genuinely people are like no 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 like i'm just i'm curious like i'm not trying to criticize what you've done i'm curious about how you've done this and it was like oh oh this is this is much more like in good faith than any <laughs> academic conversation i've ever had this is weird hmm it's such a it's such a an interesting like i don't know like that that relationship with I guess like the science community that it's, it's constantly like there is this, there is this thing that I did. These are the results that I got. And then like, you know, other people now have to try to duplicate this, this work potentially, or, you know, they will come out and be like, Oh no, that's not the case. You're wrong. My research and results showed this thing versus, you know, like a, a literary or an arts community in which it's, there is not so much of that direct or maybe even indirect confrontation between like, I have a new book of poetry and someone else is like, I have a new book of poetry. And there's, you know, there's maybe a conversation between them or no interaction between them at all. And it's just like, okay, you know, there are two books of poetry now out there that you can go look at, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. or even like, um, no, oh, no, go oh. ahead. Oh, uh, I was just going to say like, there's, I know particularly in Australia, and I think sort of on a worldwide scale as well, there's an increasing push towards um, STEAM, which is putting the arts in STEM. Um, And I hate it. And I I found it quite difficult to, like, enunciate where I hate it. But I think, like, that's part of it. The fact that, like, you know, including artistic approaches and, like, 
just genuinely like accepting people who have artistic backgrounds and like are interested in continuing that like throughout their STEM careers, like I think is really valuable to the sciences because Mm -hmm. you need creativity to come up with hypotheses. Like you need to be able to make words sound good in order to communicate (laughs) your ideas to a larger audience, Mm -hmm. which is what we have to do in order to be able to get grant funding, like at a very mercenary level, like we don't get money unless we can explain to people why our work matters. Right. Yeah. And Um, and explain it in a way that would make them like, not just why it matters, but why it should matter directly to them or be enough of a like moving enough to be like, Oh shit. Like this is something that I, I want to fund and I want to see, existent in the world yeah so like i'm i'm thoroughly of the opinion that one of the best science lecturers i ever had was my forensic lecturer when i went to summer school um at the beginning of my second year of undergraduate because he, we had two written assignments and he was like so i'm gonna read these assignments between the hours of midnight and 3 a.m <laughs> and if i fall asleep you will fail don't write me a boring essay um and so that was that was the first time actually that I, I started sort of like trying to combine science and poetry a little bit more. It was like I wrote a set of sonnets to describe the um the progression of larvae at a corpse. Oh like the that progression is of insects fantastic. at a corpse. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, and then I think the second one was like a Socratic dialogue about blood spatters. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and like that was an incredibly good way to understand that like and to just really experience how information can be presented in multiple ways and it doesn't lose any of its validity or meaningfulness meaningfulness by presenting it in that way like similarly when i was in um high school a book of short stories came out called our angels okay um and it's new zealand authors and physicists who work together to create like these pieces that use like real physical um effects like about time and the speed of light and everything but my favorite set was by glenn calhoun who's a um medical doctor and a poet in new zealand and he wrote poetry about like physical laws like and that was just that was fantastic to me and i think i think where my tension with steam and like this idea of steam comes from is Mm -hmm. that i suspect a lot of people who want to include it and want to include it from the perspective of we want better diagrams. Like oh. we want people with like, um, you know, graphical arts backgrounds. We want people with like poetry backgrounds to like come in and make our work look and sound good, but still to exist in like this very functional view of what science communication is. Right. Whereas like realistically, like there is a whole world out there and like Glenn Calhoun has written limericks about <laughs> like, the speed of light and the Planck distance. And we don't have to tie ourselves down to like this very dry academic way of writing or even like the slightly less dry way of writing that we do in science journalism. Like there is so many ways to communicate information that don't have to be tethered to like, you know, tradition and like historic ways of what should sound good. Sorry, that was around. No, no, no. I I think that, (laughs) I, I think that that's, that's a really, I think that that's an important distinction between a more integrated view of the arts in, you know, like the the science and the tech world. Where, like, you started off saying that, you know, having cultivating the, um, I guess, like the skill set and the maybe the awareness and the mindfulness that studying art brings. You know, it's like the ability to to create connections between things or the ability to like. Uh, 
I don't know, just to to have the the experience and the vocabulary to prevent to present your your view of things or your understanding of things in a in a unique and compelling way versus the sort of maybe more utilitarian approach that feels more likely to take place of like you said that like we just want all of the information that we have to be done in the same way we just want it to look prettier for either like our community or maybe just the the barest periphery of people that are outside of our community Um, yeah and it's things like um i paid a friend who was an artist who had done like two years of a biology degree before going to art school Mm -hmm. to make some diagrams for my thesis and i kind of got like weird looks about that because i was just like I can't draw for shit. <laughs> like, why are you expecting me to create, like, thesis-grade drawings? Right. Of something that, yeah, like, I'm really familiar with and, like, I can sketch out okay, but it's not going to look good. Like, of right. course I paid an artist to do this. Like, why wouldn't I? Yeah. Yeah, I have a friend of mine that is a, a medical illustrator um, that, you know, like, she... It's it's really it's interesting. I feel like she's she's sort of that integration point that like she works with. Um, I want to say that she draws stuff for like textbooks or for diagrams. I, she may work. For, she works in the for the government in some capacity, but I'm not sure what capacity. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, although I, I she I think that she might be working for a branch that is not currently affected by the shutdown. Um, okay, cool. Because it's not it's not everything that's shut down. It's just like little little pockets of it. Um, okay. But, um, like, she, all of, like, she posts stuff on Instagram of, you know, like, diagrams that she's working on or, you know, like, things that she has to research or data points that she has to understand. And then, you know, like, she does these really amazing sketches of, like, here are all the muscles connected to this one particular bone and, like, five different, like, uh, plane views of it. Um, but, yeah. Do you, do you have any worry of, with the arts uh, integration into STEM stuff, that the arts will be handled in a more, um, I don't know, like, not combative, but more like STEM style, maybe like quantifiable uh, results uh, way, instead of the, the more subjective sort of like unquantifiable way that arts usually are taught? I mean, like, overwhelmingly, my feeling is that the arts just won't be respected, if that makes sense. Mm, like, okay. it will be used for its function rather than for its value. Okay. Um, and by that, I sort of mean, like, I think, you know, my I don't have a strong background in things like visual arts. My background is, you know, very much in words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there are ways of looking at information and ways of exploring information. Like um, there's an Australian artist called uh, Patricia Puccinini. Um, let me double check that very quickly. <laughs> Patricia Puccinini, um, who like works in sort of painting and sculpture and uses that to like explore sort of scientific ideas surrounding GMOs. She made like, if you saw that like really weird looking guy that was like the human that would survive in a car crash, 
who had like a sort of bullet shaped head. Um, she made that like she's oh. she really sort of explores humanity through science. And I think like her work is really valuable because it means we sort of have to continue interrogating ourselves. Like I don't think it always sends great messages. So like for example, um, some of this is always uh, difficult to talk about. Um, some of my work involved animal testing and like. Mm. broadly like if if you were to ask me like am i in favor of animal testing my answer would be yes but it's also like yes with the caveat that like the ethical standards have to be you know sufficiently high enough to mm -hmm. justify it and like the cost has to be high enough to justify it so like the reason i use animals to test um the drugs i was looking at is because i'm looking at diseases that don't have any treatments right now including palliative care right like there's pretty minimal palliative care for end of life in um, mitochondrial diseases. And I was looking at diseases that typically like kids will die before the age of five. <laughs> so in that instance, like I think it's pretty legitimate to test these drugs on mice because firstly, we want to make sure they work, but secondly, we want to make sure that they don't kill those kids any faster. Right. And like there is incredible value to that in my mind. Um, but equally, we need those opposing views, and often those opposing views come from a more artistic background. So, like, some of Patricia Piccinini's work is kind of, like, criticizing, you know, the use of animal testing or interrogating, uh, like, how we view our humanity in relation to these other issues. Like, ooh. and I see that as being, like, really meaningful, and her work is stuff that we taught in the um, bioethics course that I tutored at the University of Melbourne. Oh, wow. But it's also, it's not work that most scientists are familiar with, because right. when they think STEAM, they think, like, yeah, like, this beautiful diagram or something that celebrates <laughs> science. Right. Whereas I think, like, the arts has a really, really valuable role in criticizing science and what we're doing. And, like, you know, as much as sometimes I'm like, oh, don't be mean about GMOs, I love them. Like, <laughs> There's value in that. There's value in people going like, hey, under like nuclear um, plant meltdowns, these things happen. Like, can we talk about like the way that we're engaging with nature right now? Can we talk about like the way that we're like testing chimeric pig humans? Like, mm -hmm. what's up with that? Like, why are we doing that? What is that about? Um, and... I worry that steam will remove that almost, yeah, like almost that it will remove the combative nature of art, the way that art sort of criticizes and ah, opens conversations. Interesting. And, okay. Yeah. yeah. And like, that's, that's the value of art to science to a large extent, whereas yeah. the function of art to science is to make things look good. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that, that art can provide a sort of like, um, outside viewpoint of like a you know hey what yeah like what what's the what's the effect not necessarily the results um yeah or even to just say like this is really weird and we should talk about it like <laughs> ivf babies pretty weird like turns out fine but when they were first being introduced like people were understandably concerned about it and they needed i think to be like i mean i wasn't alive then so who knows <laughs> but they needed to be like a bigger conversation that scientists were more willing to engage with the public on right and that's that's our failing like fundamentally scientists are just a bit shit at talking to the public about things that matter to them hmm yeah huh 
I, I'm just I'm absorbing all the things that you <laughs> it's said. Because okay. it it's like it's a maybe not a perspective that I've never I've never had, but like so many of the people that I interact with on a day to day basis are artists in some capacity, um, and I I know where um, I interact with very very few. Um, I don't know, like people in, in like the STEM world um, that, you know, like that engage with the world and are on these, you know, that, that do sort of the similar thing or do a similar thing that artists do in, in the, maybe like the precision or the, the intensity in which they scrutinize like the physical world or things that are happening around them. Um, but yeah, I guess like you said, or maybe not the best at like, conveying those things or or the the things that they find out or the the knowledge that they gain or just the experiences that they have in a way that is um consumable or maybe not yeah. not in a not in like a capitalistic consumer-ish way but just <laughs> like it's it's something that is able to be digested by people at large um in a way that is like oh okay this makes sense or like oh this is impactful to me which, haha, in an interesting way, I think is a similar reaction that people have about poetry. And segue. Ah, oh, you did very well. Because <laughs> um, I like I've definitely had um, a lot of people that are not poets that when I present them with poetry or I talk to them about poetry, there is this sort of immediate response of like, oh, I don't know enough about poetry to like to engage with it or you know i don't know enough about poetry to to say anything about like anything intelligent about uh, like this poem or this poet um mm. and i that makes me feel sad and on a bunch of different levels but i guess like the two primary ones are that like sad that they that people don't trust their instincts when it comes to poetry and two that poetry has a, I don't know, has this like mystique or has this presentation of being this very, um, like this super esoteric, very, uh, I don't know, like obscure, very difficult to understand thing, um, which I admit that there are some poets out there that write poetry that is very much like that, but you know, there are other poets, like, I mean, Mary Oliver is an example of, like, her, one of her uh, main tenets in writing poetry is that it needs to be, like, clear and accessible. Um, Because, like, like you said, like, you can't, there are people, you can't get someone to care about the things that you care about unless you're able to present it in a way that, that they can absorb and that that hits them in in the way that, in in the impactful way that you mean for it to hit them. Um, but, hmm. So anyway, um, how did you first come to poetry as a as a thing that you enjoyed doing, or <laughs> maybe not? So I, uh, okay. those are yeah, those the, are two different questions. <laughs> okay. So um, my mom is a fairly like well-renowned haiku poet. Um, and she started writing haiku while she was pregnant with me. So before then, she'd written this sort of more long-form poetry. But turns out being pregnant means you don't 
always have a huge amount of time before you need to throw up again. Um, <laughs> so, you know, while she was pregnant with me and while I was very young, she started writing haiku and got very into it. So um, if you're in the community, uh, she writes under the name Sandra Simpson. Um, so I have literally always been exposed to poetry. <laughs> okay. Um, and, like, I think one of my first published pieces was in Kokako when I was, like, four years old, right? Like, I'd... Damn. put words together as a haiku and I've been like <laughs> sounds good let's submit it um and so like that was that was very much my first <laughs> yeah I was like like a child actor but for poetry basically <laughs> um which is you, why I'm now you were the you were the um, doogie hauser yeah. of children haiku yeah I was I was gonna say Mara Wilson but okay <laughs> <laughs> I have my child poets, uh, child actors that I'd like to be compared to. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but something that I enjoyed was probably more once I'd grown up a bit. Like, um, I definitely found long form poetry easier. So once I started writing that a little bit more, um, oh. we have a poetry competition in New Zealand, the New Zealand Poetry Society competition, which runs every year. Um, and probably around the time that I started submitting long form poetry to them um, and getting, you know, highly commended, so I'm pretty good, um, was around the time that I would say I started like enjoying poetry and it started becoming something that I got. And then like, it's almost like a way of tracking like how I matured and how like my engagement with poetry matured because like then as I got older and sort of went into my like late teenage years I I started understanding haiku a bit more and being like okay okay I get this like I'm still Mm. gonna be resistant to it because my mom's (laughs) trying to make me write poetry right but I I get this and I like it and I think I got a book of um the Japanese masters so Mm -hmm. Basho, Busan, Shiki and Issa um, and just a collection of their haiku. And that was kind of the bit where I was like, shit, I'm really into this. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me it makes me really happy to think that your like early rebellion was to write long form poetry instead of haiku. That makes me just giddy with happiness that I, I don't know. That there's something it about sounds th- really stupid when you say it like that. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I could just, I could just see like a young Sophia with like, I don't know, like, <laughs> like a, uh, like ripped up leather jacket with like safety pins and patches writing sonnets or like sestinas. Then your mom comes and is like, no, but the haiku. <laughs> you have to hide like Shakespeare, Shakespeare sonnets under your bed. <laughs> um. Yeah, we have, we have a whole like, five shelf bookcase at home that has poetry books on it so it's very much something i was exposed to sort of my entire life (laughs) you might be you might be the only person that i've talked to that like that poetry was that that big of a um a facet of life from a very very early age um i feel like most people that i talk to don't really don't really arrive at poetry until much much later in life um. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I suspect that was the case for my mum. So, uh, yeah, it's almost it's almost impossible to talk about like my experience with poetry without talking about like the bits of my mum's history that I know. Um, and so she left she left high school at sixteen, 
So sixth form. I don't know what that means to American <laughs> listeners. Um, that would probably be like sophomore year. Like yeah, year? so like the year before you're meant to finish, basically. Okay. Yeah. Um, and she went to the Wanganui Daily Chronicle to apply for a job to become a photographer. She'd always wanted to be a photographer. That was what she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And after the interview, the guy who was interviewing her said, I've just given that job to the person who walked out the door. Do you want to be a journalist? Oh. Thus began a 40-year career in journalism. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I suspect that, like, at some point during her, like, young adulthood, so mum had me at, like, 36, um, so my parents are both quite old now, um, she sort of came to poetry throughout her traveling and her writing as a journalist. She started writing for fun, like, putting words together for fun. And, like, mm-hmm. Literally, like, before I was born, as long as I can remember, mum has written poetry. And so that was very much something that was just like, yeah, like, if, if your parent is super passionate about something, like, you're going to get exposed to it. And for me, the thing my mum was super passionate about was poetry. Like, and to, like, to a large extent, photography as well. Like, I had disposable cameras when I was, like, <laughs> five and six years old. There are a lot of um, photos we got um, developed that are mostly of sky. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I still have some of those. They're excellent. Real, real artistic for six-year-old. Um, They're visual haiku. Like, you're you're stepping out in the exploring uh, multimedia. Uh, yeah, let's say that instead of <laughs> I didn't through the viewfinder. Um, yeah, I, th- I think if your parent is like that passionate and that engaged in something, you're you're going to get exposed to it from a young age. Mm-hmm. And whether you end up like engaging with that more is sort of dependent on you know the specific outcomes of your upbringing um but even now like my my taste in poetry is so clearly uh linked to my mom's like one of my favorite poets is billy collins um who is also one of my mom's favorite poets <laughs> like, um the sort of poetry i was exposed to and read growing up um you know looking at new zealand poets we have alice wong we've got glenn calhoun um I have a copy of Glenn Calhoun's uh, book, Playing God, um, which is like his book of poems. It's entirely about his medical practice. And it is actually my mom's book. I took it from the house. Yeah. I didn't tell it. I was like, I want this. I'm going to take it. <laughs> so, yeah, you're like, you're, you're still seeing sort of the impact of that now. Yeah. Wow. So what... Um, I guess you're answering I was going to ask, like, what, what about... Was it just reading, like, the masters that got you hooked back into haiku? Um, or, like, was there was there any other extenuating circumstance that you were, like, that shifted, or maybe not shifted, but, like, allowed that that interest in it to, to like, deepen or to crystallize when it hadn't before? Yeah. Um, look, I'm, I'm going to be honest, and it's going to sound very shallow, but I got a lot better at them. <laughs> Okay. And no, so, I, like, I, I started, like, getting, you know, placed in competitions, and I was like, shit, I'm kind of into this. Like, dang, I made $50 from this three-line <laughs> poem. What's up? Um, but also, like, so to a large extent, like, um, I have had depression probably my entire life. Like, it was particularly bad when I was a teenager, and, God, I'm going to have to check this one as well. Either Shiki or Issa was very, very sick. Shiki. Shiki, yeah. Yep. And so... His haiku, like, really resonated with me. Oh, wow. Um, 
because it was just like they're all about death. Yes. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, and things that he um, that he sees from his uh, his sickbed. Um, yeah, I, I have a I have a collection of his um, that towards the end of the collection they they start becoming more and more about you know like I'm in bed. Here's a like a somebody brought in some peenies and a petal fell, bam. Or like it's snowing outside. I'm in bed, dying. Um, Wow, that makes that makes a whole lot of sense. That like having that connection to, um, I don't know, like, because I I feel like with with Shiki and his, like what the the stuff that he did to sort of revitalize and change haiku, um, and his adherence to like, oh, I think it's sachet, um, or like that that you draw like the the. Uh, subject of haiku should be drawn from the world around you. Um, so, like anything that you see, anything that you experience, anything that that occurs in your day to day life, is is worthy. Is not just worthy of being the subject of a haiku, but it's like that's those are the the, the only things that you should be drawing from. Um, so, to like to have a chronicle of a poet who is, you know, like I think he died of tuberculosis, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but to like to have a chronicle of him while he is sick, still trying to reach out and like just look at the shit around him and be like, you know, I got nothing else to do. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine I could definitely see how that was could be very very impactful. And I can also understand that like the the in, the gaining interest in something when you sort of discover your knack for it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean that. I don't think that that. I don't think that's shallow. It's like that makes total sense to me. That's like yes, of course you would be more interested in in something that you're you're becoming good at. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it would be weird if you were like, oh, I'm shit at this. I'm gonna study haiku. Uh, I think that's very a young adult thing to do. To be honest, <laughs> to okay. just be like, that's fair. Mm, mm, I should work on myself. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's that's yeah, that's sort of how I found my found my groove. Um, so sort of for context for listeners, um, me and Michael met at uh, Haiku North America in twenty thirteen. Oh, was I want to say was it thirteen? I thought it was two thousand fifteen. Oh no, I guess it was two thousand thirteen. Yeah, because two thousand fifteen was in um on the east coast. Yeah, so it was up in Albany. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. So it was, it was actually like during my honors year of science and I was very nervous about going to my supervisor and being like, Hey, can I have two weeks off to go to a poetry conference? <laughs> um, and then as soon as I did, he was like, Oh my God, you're so talented. <laughs> I'm like, okay, don't hide your light under a bushel, Sophia. I'm like, oh, all right, I don't know how to process this. Please can I go? <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, I was, um, with my mom, which Okay. Um, <laughs> we gave a presentation about the use of scientific concepts and haiku and sort of like how they overlap and work together. Um, and that's kind of like our background for knowing each other. Um, that was actually one of my, my favorite presentations of, of the weekend was that one. Oh, thanks. I was, I was very into it. I really liked the Orion's Belt one. Oh, yeah. Oh. I, 
this is just this is a random tidbit of information, but I I think that you and I were probably the youngest, the two youngest people at that conference, by a very very large margin. Um, oh, there was someone's daughter who was there as well. I don't, um, I don't know if I met her. Who was like in her thirties? I didn't see her very much. Mm. I spent a lot of time complaining about the weather. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, like, and I think that's largely why we became friends. Uh, and Sean was there as well. Oh, Sean yeah, Collegian. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you had him on this? No, I have not. I haven't had Deborah on here either. Fuck. Yeah. Well, um, okay. you, should, you should look at getting Sean into this because he's written a couple of haiku about, like, pride and things like that. And I really... Ooh. I, I mean, I don't go to pride parades because I'm an introverted queer. Um, Preach. So, yeah, yeah. If you've seen the net and, like, the chunk where she's just like, where do the quiet gays go? <laughs> That's kind of, like, my approach to pride. Um, but Sean is an extroverted. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, he, he's written haiku about pride, and I think it'll probably be quite an interesting conversation to talk about, like, almost, like, political haiku. Oh, yeah, fuck. I, had, I totally... Which is, didn't even yeah. think. Fuck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they 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 will they will be if not this season next season. Thank you. I. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I actually I tried to get um. I tried to get a haiku poet that I met at one of the conferences who lives in like the the Maryland area on the um, on the podcast, but she, like. Gently but very sternly declined um because i sent her like as i'm sure that most people who listen who have listened to this podcast know because i reference it most every episode i send out like a, a i don't know like a handful of page question things to my guests before recording like a week before just as like you know these are some questions i might pull from just as a you know like maybe just getting start thinking about these things just so you can get in the mode of thinking about poetry um, and I sent her the the questions, um, and she responded. She was like, "Yeah, I don't really write poetry this way, and like the the talking and thinking about this process is a very internal thing, and I don't I don't feel like we would actually have a whole lot to talk about." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, that makes me sad, but I mean, okay, cool." Yeah. I mean, it is it is very private for some people. Like, there are yes. some New Zealand haiku poets. New Zealand has, like, a weirdly active haiku community for a country of four million people. Like, just what? <laughs> and they're all they're all around Caddy Caddy. Um, so, um, the Caddy Caddy Haiku Pathway is the longest English language haiku pathway in the world. Um, the largest haiku pathway in the Southern Hemisphere. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> Mum was really involved in setting it up, and it basically started as soon as we got back to New Zealand. So again, like, there's another wow. avenue of just like constantly being exposed to haiku, um, and yeah, like there's just there's a wild amount of haiku poets in New Zealand, and some of them are really open and will chat to people all the time and be like, yeah, this is my process, this is what I'm thinking about, and some of them are just like, yeah, I just write haiku, <laughs> don't really want to go into it any further, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I. Yeah, because I I've I've yet to have a a conversation, um, which I'm. I'm, I'm sure that we will begin veering that direction. But like, I've I've wanted to talk specifically about haiku, like nothing but haiku with someone, um, and 
Uh, it's it's weird that there. I've had a couple of uh, guests on here that not expecting to think that haiku was going to pop up, and then suddenly we spend like 25 minutes talking about it. Like, oh, this is it's like finding a um, I don't know, like putting on a pair of pants and discovering that there's like a twenty dollar bill in it. You're like, oh shit, <laughs> I, can, I can go buy lunch. Thanks, past me. Well, so, I think it's a lot of people are wary about. Um, so I suspect a lot of people are wary about like entering haiku and competitions or publishing books of haiku because they see it as being a very niche interest, which fair. Um, <laughs> it's always yeah. a bit weird when I'm just like, yeah, so I'm kind of well known in the haiku community. Like my, my poems on a rock in Vancouver. Like, um, yeah, when I was 13, I wrote quite a good haiku. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> was um, that, was that first prize that you get it on a rock somewhere in Vancouver? Yeah, and it was the it was their Sakura the their cherry blossom contest, which they run every year now. Oh. Um, and we I managed to enter in the first year, uh, which meant there was less competition. <laughs> Not to say that that poem wasn't incredible, um, but yeah, it was it was put on buses around Vancouver and oh, ended up on a rock. That's wild. Um, but I think like it takes it takes a long time to start figuring out what haiku are good and what haiku are good in the context of English language haiku right now. So something I really need to buy for myself is that um, Red Moon anthology, A Hundred Years of English Language Haiku, mm-hmm. um, which does a really, really good history of it because like originally people were like, yeah, haiku should rhyme. Hmm. And I was like, no, don't do that. And like reading sort of like older haiku, even from like the 50s and 60s, you're kind of like, shit, these sound bad. Like <laughs> these are not good haiku. Um, and there's a lot of uh, language that we kind of co-opt from Japanese. So we're talking about things like kigu mm-hmm. um, and wabi, and, you know, like there's all these more obscure contexts. And like, I'm real critical of haiku that don't have season words in them. I'm like, mm, it was not a season signifier. Like, really? You suck. Like, what? It- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to know what what the time of year is. <laughs> okay, I've actually read some. Um, Okay, so I'm okay. I'm. I gotta. I gotta get into my nitpicking haiku mode. Um, yeah. Because I've actually read. Um, fuck. I don't know what book it's in, but it's in the introduction to to one of the the English language like anthology collections that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe not necessarily a defense of a lack of a like a quote unquote or a, like a traditional season seasonal word in English language haiku. Um, but more of maybe a potential explanation of why some poems don't have it. Um, at least, especially, I think speaking specifically about like American English language haiku um, yeah. is the the idea that in, um, at least according to this, that like in Japan, there's a sort of like, because the culture is so homogenized that there's a sort of like cultural... Um, like sort of like culturally shared and culturally accepted ideas of like what these seasons are. Um, whereas in America, there's not really that, that collective idea or that collective understanding of that. Like, yes, winter is this thing for everyone yeah. here. Um, so instead of using like a seasonal word as the, the sort of like placement for, or the, the, like the larger context of the poem in American English language haiku, it veers more towards just like general nature things or um, 
like using holidays as a as the demarker of mm. like doing the doing some of the work that a seasonal word would do because for most people you know like Halloween or Christmas or Thanksgiving there are sort of there are a more um I guess like generally accepted or generally shared traditions that people have um yeah so that if you say like Christmas day and then you give you know like a I don't know like a somber image or something to it. There like you can create this the same sort of tension that you would in a like a Japanese haiku that uses a seasonal word because there's an expectation that the reader has. It's like okay, Christmas Day I can I can kind of wind that up in my head as to maybe what the the larger context of of this poem is. Um, but. Yeah. I... Yeah. I mean, so so I have a lot of time for non-obvious season signifiers, and like, I think Faye Aoyagi is a really good person that talks about oh, this. Yes, and that, yes, like, yes. Yeah, like she often uses season signifiers that are obvious to her and her background and her culture, and other English language poets are like, whatever, that's not a season signifier. Um, I think like for it to be a haiku and particularly for it to be a good haiku by giving that like sense of time and place, Mm -hmm. even if it's not immediately recognizable as like a, something that's giving that context to another reader. Mm -hmm. Like I think that is part of, part of what a haiku should be. And so like, um, like I was saying, like New Zealand has a really big, like English language haiku community. And we have things like Pahutakawa, which only flower in summer. But no American writer is going to get that. Right. <laughs> like, when we talk about, like, bellbirds, when we talk about these other things, like, they're not necessarily season signifiers to an English language, um, to another English language haiku reader. Right. But I see it as being important in that it anchors it in the collective psyche of, like, the culture that you're from. And I think it's... I agree. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I, I see it as, like, you... You know, in my mind, like you have to have it to be for it to be a true haiku. But like, you know, I see that you should have a season signifier in haiku, but it doesn't have to be a season signifier that literally everyone gets. Right. Yes. 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 Um, and I think that on a, on a more a, a more and purely utilitarian aspect, that like those seasonal signifiers can do a lot of extra work in setting the like the tone or the. Um, I don't know, like the sort of emotional undercurrent that the that the haiku has, that because you have such precious few amount of words and amount of syllables and amount of space that you can that you can convey these things, like anything that you can put in there that you can sort of like game the system a little bit and get someone, somewhat get to get the reader to already start filling in, like around the framework of the of the rest of the haiku that you're presenting them is like you know like you are. Um, you're giving them a little more of a solid foundation for them to to wind up in the sort of ballpark experience that you're trying to convey to them. Yeah, but it also like it it doesn't have to be like a shared experience with the reader. Like the reader can have a totally different experience to what you were envisaging when you were writing it. Right. Yes. And like to to my mind, like that's that's part of haiku, right? Like it's a fundamentally individual experience of language mm. but it can often communicate like a shared idea if that makes sense yes. like that it sounds like a really confused way of talking about it <laughs> um well the yeah. the way that i've 
begun to see them. Um, and I think that this is in, oh, I want to say that it might be somewhere in the introduction or in the early chapters of the Haiku Handbook, um, which was written by, oh, fuck, I don't remember his name. I can never remember his name. Uh, Haiku Handbook. William J. Higginson. Um, uh, I think I have the 25th anniversary edition, which has had like some extra stuff added to it after its first uh, publication. Um, but in the um, somewhere early in the early in the book, um, Higginson talks about like how he views haiku, and I, it's a, a view that I've sort of adopted. That essentially, the, like you have an experience, it makes you feel something. You recognize that the thing that you feel exists in some some place beyond language that would be very, very difficult to convey. So instead of trying to convey the actual emotion or the thing that you felt, you are instead going to give a, the reader like the distilled down and essential aspect of the experience that you had in the hopes that it like kicks off or it pings in them a similar like emotional or a similar feeling. Um, so in, in that way, I totally agree with you that it is a very individualized um, experience with language and with an experience, like, you know, just with an experience, because you're essentially just getting the, like, you're getting just this framework of this, of, you know, these images or these things, and it's up to you to sort of, it to, you know, to have the experience of whatever it is that that makes you feel. Um, but I am under, I'm of the belief that, like, that the thing that is being transferred or that, you know, like you will have your own experience reading this poem, but like if, if a haiku is doing it, like its job, then there'll be some emotional thing that you will be able to leech from it. That it was maybe in the general bar ballpark of like what the haiku writer experienced. Um, at least that is to say, that is the way that I, I tend to write haiku. Um, because it's also the way that I tend to write my like longer form poetry. Um, cause I'm like, I'm very preoccupied with like that sort of emotional conveyance. It's like, I, I want people to be able to stand in the same place that I stood and to, to feel something similar to what I felt, but based more on their own experiences and their own life and the own things that they, that they can bring in and fill in. And, you know, like the, the weird sort of paradox that when you, that when you write, poetry so hyper specifically and you get down to the sort of like emotional and poetic truths that those are universal things because it's emotions and thing and feelings that are felt by everyone it's just that the way that they get there tends to be you know wildly or could be wildly not the same path that you traveled to get to them yeah you're essentially giving someone the framework to have the feeling and have the memory yes so like um Roberta Beery, right, has written, like, a fantastic set of haiku and is probably still writing haiku about um, her mother passing. Mm -hmm. And, like, I haven't lost a parent, so I don't understand that feeling, but I can read those haiku and be like, damn, yes. that is, like, that is sad. Yes. <laughs> like, right, that it's, like, woo. it's, there, you you can, like, and I, I think that, that like, I'm I'm sure that you have experienced some sort of like emotional loss in your life, and I I think that like that that to me is the 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 avenue of 
like yes, you've not you've not experienced the the like very unique and sort of tremendous emotional loss that happens as a result of a of a parent's death, but you've experienced something that is at least in like akin to it or some some family relation of of that loss. And that to me is like that's the avenue that you have like the own path that you've traveled in into that experience that you can then overlay on top of like Roberta Barry's haiku would be like, oh yeah, I know what that feels like. Maybe not in this exact context or to the to the depths or to the degree that you're feeling it, but like I I recognize that you know like there's there's an echo of something of that in me, um, which to me is like that's like empathy that like you are you are able to step into the experience of someone else and be like oh yes I know what this feels like in maybe not exactly or perfectly you know, like stepping into this experience, but you know, like I can get close to it because I've, uh, there's something that I've felt in me, or like maybe even, or maybe something that you felt that you've never been able to put a language to, or like a, a, a pinpoint it to like, oh yeah, this is, this is this feeling, um, which I personally think poetry kind of by and large, um, like that's a really, um, a really valuable, uh, effect that that poetry can have is like giving someone the vocabulary or the the like emotional language to be like oh yeah i can now talk about this thing that i felt because there's this this framework that i can drape this thing on and see how it fits and be like oh yeah this is i can use this word for this thing or i can use this idea or this image like, oh yeah that's exactly that's how i feel um like, there's that one there's that one famous part yeah the emily dickinson poem about death right like which oh god it's taught at high school so no one actually <laughs> likes it <laughs> but it is like this wonderful kind of like language about death and loss and mm-hmm. you know like just conceptualizing what loss might look like like and i think it's pretty good to have it taught at high school because like a lot of us haven't experienced loss at that point in time right and to kind of have like that language and that knowledge that like other people have experienced that mm-hmm. yeah it's it's like the primer that you are you may not have experienced this thing yet but you were given the i don't know like the key to that door that in the event or eventually whenever it is that you arrive there you're like oh okay i now really actually get this or like oh i can now i can press this this or i can go through my grief maybe a little easier because I have a, like a metaphor or an image that I can, I can associate with this thing instead of floundering in this, you know, like this sort of un, uh, like formless miasma of, of feeling. that's like, I don't know how to fuck to navigate this. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things about haiku is because they're so minimalistic in what they can evaluate reading one can be a dramatically different experience depending on the time of your life. Yep. Um, I think like in more long form poetry, like because of the increase in context and, you know, the, the lyricism of reading it and all of that, like there will often be a similar thread of how you feel when you read it, like, you know, depending okay. on where you are, yeah. but because haiku have so little to them, you know, like two to four lines, right? Like, <laughs> um, there's much more capacity for change yeah. in like your personal experience as a reader. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's, I would feel like that's a, um, 
a result of the fact that they are so like image based. Um, they're like they're like little short montages that you know like there's there's um, there's no exposition, there's no dialogue. It's just you have these usually these two images that are just like put or or somehow welded to each other. Um, and the fact that they were so implicative um, instead of overt, that there's all this like all these implications or all these things that it could mean or it could be, so that there's this it creates this huge amount of internal space of like you said that like depending upon where you are in your life or what you're experiencing, what you're going through, like those images and that internal space could allow for you to be wildly, you know, like on one side and then swing wildly to the other side or be, you know, it's like there's, there's all this room that you can walk around in and, and fig, you know, like, um, I don't know, what's a, I'm trying to think of an analogy, like, it's like a, um, a shirt that you have or like a pair of pants that you have that pairs with like every other thing in your wardrobe. So you can just, you can wear it like whenever and it looks good and it feels good. And it's like, okay, yeah, this, this works in this situation. And then, you know, like a week later, like, oh fuck, I have, oh, I can wear those pants with this shirt and this bow tie and these suspenders and, you know, go out and paint the town. I don't know. What, what's a good color for a haiku? If Gray. You, ooh, Okay. Yeah, you go out and paint the town haiku green. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm I'm curious as to why you you bolded this um, this question, but um, how do you feel about five seven five in English? Oh, real language? bad. <laughs> <laughs> I bolded it because I fucking hate it. <laughs> I think. I think it's an interesting constraint. So I think there's like one annual like competition in New Zealand where you have to enter it as five seven five, um, and I think when artists are constrained, that can often increase creativity. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that's that's something we already see in haiku because haiku are real little. Um, so you have that constraint of words and kind of the amount that you can say about what you're experiencing, and so every word you try and make sure has like the most use out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you go into five, seven, five, like I think it can be a really interesting and fun exercise for experienced or even not so experienced poets, but people who are familiar with haiku to start trying to constrain themselves even more and mm-hmm. do something a little bit harder. Like it's fun. it's like playing a video game on a heart, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, I'll do five, seven, five. Let's see how this goes. And like in New Zealand, we have the beautiful, um, luxury that Pahutakawa is five syllables. Uh, so if you need a season oh. word, you've got one line sorted. Um, <laughs> but also, like, it's taught to school children as being the only way to write haiku. And I think mm-hmm. that's an unnecessary constraint to try and get people to explore this wonderful form of poetry. And so, in general, I just I hate 575. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> I, um... Up, so up until like 2000, shit, I guess 2013, um, like I was aware of haiku as a um, as a form of writing, and I'm sure that I've encountered I, enc- I had encountered it at that point in a couple of different ways. But it wasn't until um, it wasn't until like the response of uh, our teacher feedback um, in one of my uh, poetry workshops 
that I really sort of like deep dove into haiku and it was like, oh shit, this is the, the poetry form that I've been looking for since, you know, I started looking for poetry. Um, and I think, I don't know if I'm, if my experience with it is, is unique or if it's a common thing that's like, as soon as I started reading haiku, I started finding like as many books as I could find of like just how to write it or, you know, like the, the more technical aspects of, um, this is how you employ a haiku. Um, and in a lot of those, I started encountering um, the whole, like, it's not, like, 575 is not necessary. You don't need to do that. Because that's a, that's a like, the way that it's, it's been presented to me is that in the Japanese language, like, the 575 syllable pattern is akin to speaking in iambic pentameter in English. It's just a sort of, like, quirk of the language. Um, so, one, because it's like kind of a peculiar peculiarly Japanese thing and two because in Japanese um, the counts are actually for on or ona instead of syllables which are a hell of a lot shorter um, like it doesn't really directly overlay to English um, as a as a like you know it'd be like if you're writing haiku in iambic pentameter or I guess like maybe um, iambic tetrameter I don't know um <laughs> And the fact that, like, in if you if you were trying and I there was I think there was some article that I read that was that did an analysis of like when haiku is read aloud in Japanese in the five seven five pattern versus haiku read aloud in English in the five seven five pattern that um, the haiku in Japanese were like I think like three seconds two to three seconds shorter which amounted to like a total of 10 to 12 syllables in English instead of the 17 um, mm. if you followed the 575 pattern. Um, and then I started learning about like, oh, well, you know, like there's the season word, there's the, the sort of the kareji, like the sort of cut that happens. There's the yeah. like the two, the two separate images that are put together that, that depending upon how you like punctuate it or you know like it could be two disparate images that you're putting together it could be like a deepening of an image or you know whatever there were that there were a lot of other aspects that made in my mind made haiku function properly as haiku and that the five seven was like as long as you you're in the sort of ballpark of you know like 15 ish syllables eh, it's it's whatever you know and plus it also <laughs> has it's like i think that it's because Haiku to me are, I mean, I encounter them mostly as as written, but I know that they were, um, you know, like originally performed when they were part of the like the haikai no renga, you know, like party games. It's like you, it's a like a speaking thing, um, so they're meant to be heard or like said visually. So one of my basis when writing haiku is in English is like if it does it sound if it sounds good in the English language. And it fits these these other issues, and not necessarily like a, a strict syllable count. Eh, I I would say it's a successful haiku. Meh. Yeah. But yeah, I actually got into like the the one like internet um, discussion that I've ever got into was when I posted something on my my now defunct Tumblr about haiku, and somebody engaged with me for like. I don't know. I think we must have sent like five or six comments back to each other about like, oh, because I, I wrote something about, you know, like, this is my understanding of haiku. And somebody was like, well, no, it should be 575, right? 
like that's that's what it needs to be. And I was like, no, not really. Um, and then we got this big long discussion, and then I never heard from him again. And I was like, okay, well, I hope this was edifying for you in some way. But um, okay, how do you feel about people who present or who write things that they say are haiku, but to your understanding and experience are not haiku? How do you, how do you handle that? That depends on the context. Okay. So there is one situation where I was knocked out of first place in the New Zealand Poetry Society haiku competition by something that isn't a goddamn haiku. (laughs) And so I'm still pretty mad about that. Yeah, I would be too. And the woman who wrote it is a really good long-form poet, and I just like – I'm real fucking into her long form poetry. And then she wrote this haiku that's just like a three line simile. And I'm just like, mm, no, Ooh. incorrect. Should not have won. Who was the judge? Because I need to write them a letter. <laughs> um, but generally if like people are just giving the form a go, like I will try and be like, Hey, like this is really good. Like, I'm really glad that you're entering into this. Here's some material to look at. Like um, often people will write about, what they know, which is really good, but that means that you can very easily slip into writing a scenery rather than a haiku. So um, mm-hmm. haiku tend to focus on nature, whereas scenery focus on the urban environment, which we all live in cities now, uh, so people write about those a lot, which oh, is understandable. That's um, I've, So my... That's really interesting. I've never heard that, that particular distinction between haiku and scenery. Um, mm. it, it's been presented to me and I've, I've read it as the, the at least the distinction that I've encountered is that haiku is more outward nature facing and sinri was more like inward human facing it's more of like human cor- corbels and talking about like human interaction and human which I guess would make sense would be that's probably what you would encounter more in an urban environment than you would in um, a more like naturalistic setting but anyways I, I didn't mean to it was just an interesting. Oh, no, it's, it, it's okay. That's um. That's possibly also a distinction of like our cultural backgrounds as well. So like oh, coming okay. from New Zealand, urban environments tend to be the only places where you interact with other humans. <laughs> um, Fair point. But Fair like point. our our urban and natural environments are so intertwined. Like it's very easy to make that distinction with regards mm-hmm. to haiku and scenery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's often like. I try to treat every instance where someone hasn't beaten me in a haiku competition. Um, by not writing a haiku as a learning experience for the person who's written it. Like they might just be doing it for fun and they might be being like, Oh, these are some haiku I wrote. And that's, that's fine. Like they can have fun with that. Mm -hmm. I'm still weirdly enthusiastic about haikus. I'm like, Hey, like (laughs) here's some really good materials. These are people who are really good at haiku. Read their stuff. I love it. Oh, let's talk haiku. Um, But I'm never going to be a dick about it. Okay. Yeah. So it's a way for you to like, to acknowledge, at least personally, that like mm, you might you may be missing the mark here a little bit, but to to come at them enthusiastically and su- and supportive of what they're doing, but also in a way to present them with like here read a bunch of this stuff, um, you know like these are the masters these are people who who do it really well, um, hmm. I yeah well it's it's. I don't want to disencourage anyone from expressing themselves creatively. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I, I think I might have to, uh, not, well, not might have to. I think I'm going to rethink, because usually I don't, 
most of the time when I encounter things that, that are presented as haiku that I don't, I don't think of as haiku or I don't view as haiku, it's usually like in a book somewhere that someone has published, you know, like, this is a collection of love haiku. And I'm like, no, dude. It's, or like, you know, like in a bookstore somewhere, mm. just thumbing through the, the racks uh, or the shelves. And I see, I encounter this thing and I'm like, ooh, I can feel my eye are coming up in the back of my throat. Um, so in like, and in that, that way, it's usually just like I fume about it and then I may talk, you know, like I may vent at uh, somebody who is willing to listen to me vent about haiku. And then, you know, like there's, there's no, there's no personal engagement with, with the author of, of these things. Um, yeah. Cause I feel like there have been like, I, I'm in a writing group and I feel like there've been a couple of times that someone has, has presented something that's a, that's a haiku that like, for me, like it's because it's a workshop, it's a, it, you know, like you said, it's a teachable moment or a learning experience of like, you know, Hey, like you're, you're doing like, these are the things that about this haiku that are working. These are some things that like, you know, you may want to be a little more implicative here. You may not want to use that, this particular word, like you might want to clear up this image a little bit. So it's, it's really like impactful. Um, and not just be like swat it down as like, this is shit. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I guess probably because I'm not super engaged in like the haiku community at large in the United States and have never really done like competitions is not a big thing that I do. Um, so I've been in very limited experience or limited exposure to people that are actively like submitting things, um, that may or may not be haiku that I am in, that I am personally in a position to be like, Oh, Hey, this is great. You know, check out these people. Let's talk about this. But, um, God, there are so many. There's so many books that I encounter that are like, "This is a love haiku," and it's just like it's like an aphorism. I'm like, "You, you fucker, you're not you're not doing it." And you're you sold a book, and you're capturing people, and you're making people think that this is what haiku is. And I'm like, "You, I just want to shake a oh shake God, something." Just, I am very much of the opinion that we have limited energy and <laughs> someone writing a shit haiku is not worth me getting like up in arms about. Like if it's, if it's someone I know, like I'm absolutely going to be like, Hey, let's talk about Kigu. <laughs> like let's talk, let's talk Japan. Let's talk five, seven, five. But if it's not someone I know, it's like, dang, like, I don't know how you have the energy for that. Like you've got Trump as a president. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. You have bigger things to be mad about. Well, it's actually it's interesting. I that was I feel like I was more fumey about haiku that's not haiku when Obama was president versus <laughs> versus now. Well, that's a good split of your energy then. That's, that's yeah, yeah. But it's just like it's like um, oh god, like sometimes I get flack on Twitter for having bad opinions or not being a guy. I don't know. Like and I mean, all you can do is just be like, okay, and just move on. Just yeah. like, all right, you can have that opinion. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, like I was, I was talking to someone recently about, so, um, there are, there are a lot of things in my life that I do not feel strongly about, or I, I feel I'm passionate about, but I, I don't feel like I'm in a position where I could like dispense, um, like everything that I dispense in relation to this thing, I couch as like, this is my opinion or like in my experience, these things and not like, I don't feel like I have any, any room to be an authority on, on that. Um, there are two things in my life that I feel like I veer towards like, you know, I, I can maybe present this information, not so much as an opinion, but as like, you know, I, I know what I'm talking about. 
and it happens to be haiku and birds, which is a very weird thing. But um, a friend of mine was was showing me that um, she bought a pair of leggings from eBay um, that were uh, described as um, having lovebirds on them, and she as she was like looking at them and she was like, Oh no, those are not lovebirds. Those are Conyers. How could, how could someone think that, that lovebirds and Conyers are the same thing? Um, so like bird, bird misidentification and like haiku misidentification are weirdly two things that I'm like, I feel very, very strongly about, um, as like a, but, but, but no, but that's also (laughs) a very like not conducive to, you know, like, if someone's like, oh, that, that bird is this bird. I'm like, no, I think it's this bird. But, you know, instead of being like, let's talk about birds. You know, I don't know. I, sh- I, yeah, should, pr- I, think- I, I should probably loosen the reins a little bit on, <laughs> on, on, those, on those two, uh, two things. I think very much my approach was um, shaped by the fact that I had some housemates who would absolutely troll me about haiku. <laughs> <laughs> um and so I just had to be like, okay, like, fine. You wrote a, you wrote a bad haiku. Like, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> like, yeah. Come on, man. Yeah. I actually, I think, I think my partner um, sent me a series. Like, she was, one night she was a little tipsy. Um, and she was like, I'm going to write a bunch of drunk haiku. And she sent me, like, four of them, um, which I have saved. I've, I've thought about publishing just, just because... Um, but I guess I guess it's like in a situation where it's presented as like humorous or like it's more tongue in cheek or sort of you know like the there's a, at least a little bit of a tip of a hat of acknowledgement of like I know that what I'm doing is missing the mark, but it's you know like it's satire it's for comedic effect it's it's not it's not presented in any sort of seriousness there's a there's a much greater amount of slack that I cut things presented in that way versus people who are like. This is I'm serious about writing haiku, and this is a serious haiku, and you know it's not. But de- again, depending upon you know like the stage in their writing or their their experience in in specifically writing haiku, you know like they could be very early in their experience of writing haiku, and you know like I like you said, it's like you don't you don't really want to squash that uh, someone sharing an artistic or you know like a thing that they did um like that's a thing that should be a sp- it supported and you know like honed and you know like maybe try to be guided into a direction where they can find out more about it i don't know i feel i feel like I'm, i might be getting a little miserly in my old age and it's something i need to uh i need to keep tabs on yeah i think like you just you just want to let people like things you know yeah oh yeah yeah. I mean not not like not like R. Kelly. No one can like <laughs> R. Kelly, that's not allowed. But you know, you gotta let people like things, you gotta let people try things. Yeah. I mean it's weird that like with like I'm I'm much more open and free with music. Like if someone presents music to me that I'm like I'm not a fan of but they are really into, like I'm so supportive and so encouraging of that. Um and it's just it's weird that like the the grip that I have on haiku feels a little like maybe not that much tighter but definitely feels tighter than the grip that i have on like other other things and i'm i'm not i'm I'm honestly not sure why that is um it could be because there's a lot of bad haiku out there 
Yeah, that that might be <laughs> that might be a reason. And I guess also like I don't know. I it it might be that like that poetry in general is viewed as this that weirdly viewed as like a, a this paradoxical like oh I don't know anything about poetry. It seems like it's this very like highfalutin you know like high intellect. It's way up here. Or like a, oh you know I could it's a I could write poetry. How hard could poetry be? Um, you know, like this weird sort of disparaged, like, oh, it's it's this very high art, and also like it's it's this worthless thing that you shouldn't spend your time on. And also, I could write, you know, I could do that. Um, and I feel like within that haiku, have that sort of appearance of like, oh, this is a really easy thing to do. It's like, oh, anybody can write a haiku, which is like, yes, I I, I agree with you, but that doesn't mean that there are an easy thing to to do well. I guess maybe is, yeah. Um, no, but... I, I definitely used to get a lot more sort of defensive and protective of haiku because whenever, like, I told people that I wrote, you know, that, like, this is something that I'm really good at, like, yeah. and I, I'm, like, I'm really proud of it, and I don't talk about it very much anymore, but, like, I'm I'm proud that I'm, like, an internationally published haiku poet. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Um, but people would be like, oh, haiku. Like, I know, you know, that one haiku where it's just, like, Haiku are good, but sometimes they don't make sense. Refrigerator, which yeah. is a five seven five that people always pull out, and it's just like that always made me like upset because it felt like people were minimizing this thing that I'd worked mm. at, this thing that I was doing really well at. Mm-hmm. And so it it did take a while for me to kind of like back off and just be like, your opinion of what I do doesn't matter because uh, like I know I'm good at it and I'm valued within the community. Like I went to. Um, Roberta Berry was coming around Australia and New Zealand and so I went to see her in Melbourne with a bunch of the um, the Melbourne haiku poets and I would chat to people and I'd be like, oh yeah, like I'm I'm Sophia and they'd be like, oh, are you the New Zealander? Like, and I'd be like, yeah. Like, oh, Sophia friend. Oh, I really like your stuff. Are you still writing? And it's like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I haven't like published since, you know, I was like, I think before 20, like, what? (laughs) So that's, like, it took a while for me to sort of go from being quite defensive about this thing that I was good at because no one seemed to really take it seriously as Mm -hmm. a field or a type of poetry to just being, like, you know what, like, it's fine. Like, I know I'm good at it. The community knows I'm good at it. Right, yeah, like, the the people that, whose opinion you value or who's, you know, like, who's you would like to, uh, you would prefer to direct energy towards, like, they get yeah. it, they understand, and then everyone else, like, fuck it, fuck it, who, who gives a shit? Yeah, and it, it would suck, because, like, um, someone I really respected, like, pulled out that refrigerator thing to me when I told her that, you know, I'd done really well at this thing, and it was like, okay, like, is that what, is that what you think of, like, yeah. my work? Like, yeah. I'm on a rock in Vancouver, man. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I was on buses. Yeah, yeah. World famous in Vancouver <laughs> in like 2006 or something. But like, but that like that's a really like that's a really amazing thing of like how many people encountered your haiku that happened to be. I'm assuming this rock is probably in like a garden somewhere, not just a, ra- a random rock, like somewhere in the city. Um, but like that's that's a really amazing thing to think that that anybody who who happened to be where this rock was had it like experienced your poem 
and might still be experiencing your poem. Um, that's a that's yeah. a really like. I feel like that's a that's a thing that like. I don't know that that might be. Uh, I'm gonna uh, send you a link to it. It's really cool. Okay, yeah. We got I, like prints of the posters. Um, so there's still one like in the attic at home. My dad was like, <laughs> "Do you want to take it to Melbourne?" And I was just like, "Where would I put this poster of my haiku in my house? It wouldn't be just like so self-aggrandizing." No, no, not at all. They should <laughs> they should have given you the fucking rock you just put somewhere. <laughs> um. I will. I will totally link this into the in the description of the the episode. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, the the poster with my one is right at the top of that um, that page. So. Oh, that's so cool. So I. I if in the event, um, that you begin generating haiku more regularly, and you would like to publish a collection of them, keep me in mind. I'm I'm 100 serious <laughs> about this. Keep me in mind because I would publish the shit out of a, of a haiku collection of yours. Oh, thank you. Or if you had any any older poems that you had lying around that you wanted to just get out there, um, let me know. Yeah, I think I'm still sort of readjusting to my new life because, like, you know, like I, I submitted my PhD almost exactly a year ago now. Wow. Um, but I'm still, like, going, okay, like, I have free time again. Like, I have weekends again. What am I doing with this? Like, and essentially, you know, like asking myself the kind of life I want to leave and the kind of, you know, adult I want to be. Um, and so I'm still sort of readjusting to that. And also my now dislike of looking at words for too much <laughs> it takes it takes a while to recover from a phd thesis <laughs> yes i i can i can definitely imagine um so there is there is another question that you bolded that i'm i'm i don't know if i'm going to ask it this particular way but i'm curious about just this in general that do you like do you separate out your haiku practice and your your like form or your longer form poetry practice like do you do you view them as two separate things things or do you view them as like um i don't know that like you would that they are just different um i don't know like different like two different facets of the same sort of like creative energy or creative output or creative direction i don't know however you want to view that so I think they inform each other in that, like, when I'm not okay. writing a sort of definite form, like a sonnet, my faves, um, <laughs> like, I'm, I don't tend to rhyme, for example. Okay. Um, and, like, definitely my style of long-form poetry, again, like, when I'm not writing sonnets, um, tends towards the more minimalist when it comes to word use, okay. but I definitely view and treat them as two very separate things. Do you, do you have a, I guess this is, this is the, the part of the, the bold question, um, bolded question, not, not that this is, this question itself is a bold question. Um, do you, do you feel like you have a different process, um, that you, that you embody or that you go through when you write haiku versus like a sonnet or another, like some long form, longer form poem? Or maybe Absolutely. even maybe even that. It's um, like, do you have a do you have a haiku process, a sonnet process, and then like a formless long form poem process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, haiku. Hmm. I don't know if other people have this experience. It's always so bold thinking about like your internal thoughts and how you like visualize your memories and emotions. Because mm-hmm. it's like, does anyone else do this? Who knows? <laughs> um, 
there are some memories and some experiences I've had in my life where I've just been like, this will be a memory that will like exist in my brain, like a Polaroid photo. Like this is something that for whatever reason is just like imprinted on my brain. It's like, Oh, there it is. Okay. Like that is a, well, a moment in time, like to steal haiku language. Um, and it's those kind of experiences that tend to filter into my haiku practice. So like oh. the way that I write those is kind of like, pulling out snapshots of my experiences and moments in time and yeah um and then trying to distill that down into words Mm -hmm. um shit hold on i think i have some i just cleaned out my desk so it might take me a second (laughs) um There was one I wrote, God, like four years ago, um, which I am currently like flipping through. God, my writing, my handwriting is like not good a lot of the time. Yes, I. Um, <laughs> I well, I've seen your handwriting. I, I know. <laughs> I, I live that life. Um, but, but it's it really like, it's really good if you are taking a test and you're worried if someone uh, is going to copy off of you. But it's yeah, also it was, it's bad if you are writing a test and you have to have the teacher read it afterwards. <laughs> As someone who has both been the writer and the reader, like <laughs> absolutely. Um, it was something like summer night. I count the constellations on your back. Oh, that's um, a good haiku. And it was very much like a night with a person who was sleeping in the same bed as me. Like they were coughing a lot and I was like extremely worried that they were just going to stop breathing and die because like I get a little bit paranoid like that sometimes. So I was awake like the entire night just like watching their back just being like still breathing. Good. Still breathing. Good. (laughs) Um, And that was like, but that was like, that was very much a snapshot in time. That was a moment where I could like kind of pull it out and be like, wow while it was a really anxious and stressful kind of night, like there were moments of serenity inside of that, but they were very, very small. Mm -hmm. And that smallness made a good haiku. Okay. Um, Yeah. yeah. When it comes to sonnets, I tend to be writing them for a function. So Uh, sonnets are like my preferred form when it comes to just kind of like tongue in cheek, communicating scientific (laughs) information. Okay. Um, Yeah, this is going to be the part of the podcast where I read out ones of my poetry. So let me get that beautiful book that you made me. (laughs) So gorgeous. Thank you. Um, So for the the end of my thesis, um, for the gift to one of my supervisors, I wrote a crown of sonnets that matched up with my thesis chapters. Uh, is that is that what you call a group of sonnets, a crown, or is that a, a very particular number of sonnets? It's a very particular number of sonnets, which okay. I hit. <laughs> um, and I think I make that pun, like, at some point in the crown of sonnets. Um, so, yeah, I had, like, a beginning and an ending one, and then every chapter had a matching sonnet inside of it. Um so I'm going to read like sonnet number two 
which you probably don't remember because this was a while ago now. I, I can uh, re- I can remember. I don't know if uh, I can remember like the, like seeing the image of the sonnets on the page, but I don't know if I could pull like any words or any um, any like lines from them. Yeah. So um, the second one is about my is my lit review in sonnet form. Um, and oh god, I'm so embarrassed about reading this. So I'm just gonna just gonna do it. <laughs> yes, do it. Um, Share your poetry. The the mitochondria uncommon, not in cells, of course, but in story or song. Our science does not spark passion or longing in artists or poets, poets, but we know they are wrong. What is more poetic than energy lost, running at maximum to stay in place? Scores of mice carefully backcrossed to model disease in a controlled space. The mito does more than respire or not. It signals to calcium growth and death. All of these factors thicken the plot, organelles hanging off every breath. Treatments for Mito are not clearly known, but within these pages, a way may be shown. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm like... Oh, I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, generally, the sonnets I write are the stuff that I'm proudest of because I will often spend like the longest time trying to get them perfect, to have that combination of like communication of information and like this one was pitched like for my PhD supervisor so I didn't have to go into a lot of depth for things and could just kind of like reference them and move on right um but yeah it's a lot of work to like get the syllables right to get the rhyming scheme to make sure you're communicating the information and then make sure it doesn't sound like shit (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh and so like this little book um I got I got Michael to make two copies one for my PhD supervisor one for me um, and it's just like it's a combination of being proud of like this this set of sonnets and also like the pride that comes with my PhD thesis. <laughs> so it's it's a lot of feelings. <laughs> um, but yeah, so sonnets seem to be the one that I will consciously spend the most effort on and like really make sure that I'm going back and I'm working through it and I'm like checking it and I'm reading it aloud to make sure it sounds good. Um, and so that tends to be my process for sonnets. And then more like long form freehand stuff. I just have feelings and then I write them down. (laughs) (laughs) That I think that that is probably the closest to my, my writing process. I'm, I'm not going to read out a free form one. They're all (laughs) extremely embarrassing. That's okay. So yeah, that's my process. I the when when you were describing it the way that I was like I think that the um the mental image of like haiku as almost like polaroids or like little like snapshots of moments that you can that you can hold on to that you know like are very much image driven it's like that's how the the memory is crystallized for you as as an image versus um and things that are very much you know like heavily heavily drawn upon your experiences whereas sonnets may or may not be but i see them more as like very intricate like almost like a house of cards that you're building up that like each each thing has to be in its right place in the right way to carry the weight and to be distributed the right the right way so it's this very intricate you know thing that can exist that requires a whole lot of dedication and work to get it to like stand up how it's supposed to stand up um hmm <laughs> Do you, like, 
I feel like there's another question that I have about about this, but I it's not like I can I see its shadow, but I can't see the question itself. Um, okay. Okay. So this, this is something that I feel like somebody asked me. So I, I do a, a traditional like there are two final questions that I ask in one of them. Spoilers is if you have any questions for me. And I, well, I want to say that one of my guests asked me if I actually enjoyed writing poetry, um, which was like a consideration that I don't think I had ever had before. Um, so I would like to pose that question to you. Or at least, like, of the three poetic processes that, that you engage in, do you enjoy one or a number of them? Or uh, maybe I enjoy, broader. Yeah. Well, like, I, I enjoy all of them, just kind of in different ways. Like, they all provide different creative outputs, and I think I need all of those creative outputs. Mm, and, right. like, you know, I'm happily at a point in my life, and, like, poetry isn't my career, bless. Um, <laughs> so I can just, like... I can write when I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that greatly increases the enjoyment of it. Yeah. So that like you're only writing when you feel for lack of a better term, like the spirit move you to like, or yeah. to have, when you have the inspiration, like, Oh shit, I just, I had this thing that happened. I can, I can make this a poem. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And it's like, um, Oh god, I don't know if this is a thing that anyone outside New Zealand gets, but all New Zealanders get this, so it's fine. Um, well, there's there's some, been somebody in fucking Wellington has been listen, has been powering through some of my podcast episodes. So there'll be at least <laughs> one person that will get this. Um, every so often, and like generally a couple of times a year, you will just get this feeling inside of you where you're like, I have to go to the ocean. Like I have to go to a large body of water. I have to be oh. near the ocean. I have to see it. I have to like put my legs in it got to be at the ocean got to happen got to smell the salt like and it's just like this totally inexplicable urge within you and like i get it at work sometimes and i just have to like go down to the river and be like this isn't the worst river in the world i guess <laughs> like cool job the yara like this is okay um and it, it'll just happen like it'll come upon you and you'll be like nah gotta gotta see the sea gotta think about all the jellyfish that exist in the sea around australia just gotta do it um and it's kind of like that's often like how I'll write haiku, like there'll just be something within me that'll click and it'll be like, you got to write haiku. Like, I don't care what about, you got to go do it. Like find shit, write them down. Um, and that's, huh. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's like enjoyment as much as fulfillment. Okay. Like it fulfills a need within me that like probably comes from unconscious processes or some kind of need that I have in my life right now mm-hmm. that I haven't entirely like grasped in a conscious sense. But, it's resulted in this need and fulfilling that need feels good. Um, I think yeah. that, I think that that is a very, very important distinction. Um, Cause th- like when, when the person asked me if, if I enjoyed writing, um, like it's never, it's not something that I ever really thought about because for me, writing is one of those things that's like in those moments when I, when I feel the need or I feel a poem coming up. It's like, I have to get it out. There's, there's no other, like it's, it's coming out. That's just, that's the, <laughs> like, you know, like, um, that like when, uh, like, Oh fuck. What's a, like when water is left out and evaporates, that's just what it does. It's like, it's, it's yeah. not, it's not, it's just a natural process that like, this is, it, it follows the, 
It's a process that follows the rules that govern the physical universe. And I feel poetry, when I write it, is very much like there is this thing in me that when it's the, the, the correct correlation of experience and image and emotion and like openness and like place like personal placement for me or in context or whatever, when all of those things converge, there is a natural process that follows whatever rules govern that. And that process is like writing a poem. Um, so it's, it's never really been something that I've in, I've thought about as an enjoyment that like, you know, I like breathing, I breathe. I don't really, I just, I do it. It's not a like, Oh, I'm enjoying this inhale today. Um, but I definitely think that it is a thing that's like, it brings me fulfillment and contentment. Um, yeah. That, like like you said, it's like there's this need or there's this thing, this this pressure building up to you and the, the, the act of writing the poem is a thing that relieves that pressure or, or fulfills like, you know, it's like you have a, I don't know, I can't, it's like, you, like this hole that shows up and you're like, I'm going to shove a poem in that hole. And it's like, okay, that works. And then that, you know, like that, that void that opens up is, is not, or that space that opens up is filled and you're like okay well that's the thing that needed to go there and i'm you know like i'm fulfilled and i'm content and i'm i'm glad that there is not this like escapage from happening out of me anymore it's like a plug you yeah. just shove you shove the thing in there um and like honestly it's more it's more meaningful and more practical almost to search for fulfillment and contentment in life rather than rather like enjoyment. enjoyment or happiness yep because those are like very active emotions to feel whereas fulfillment and contentment are passive emotions so like oh, you know you can be happy you can be sad but when those active emotions go away you return to a state of fulfillment and contentment oh my god you just blew oh so <laughs> so i've i've long felt that that my like emotional energy output I generally don't have enough of an output to get to emotions that feel like like happiness or excitement that the usually the highest I get up to is like contentment or like peace or like you know enjoyment um and i I never really I never put it together that there are like active it's like intro, introvert extrovert stuff that there are these like active emotions that require energy to be output and then there are other things that you can feel that are either like a net energy neutral or even like energy coming in. Um, but wow, that fuck, that makes total fucking sense. You just, you blew my emotional internal game <laughs> wide open. Um, which I feel like is a good segue to the, my traditional last two questions. Um, mm -hmm. The first of which being, if you have the vocabulary to describe it, what is your internal landscape like? Huh. That's a good question. Thank you. Look, I don't I don't know. Okay. Um That's fair. It's I don't I'm aware of changes in my internal landscape more than I'm aware of like the natural state. Oh, interesting. Um, and like it's it's changed a lot recently, mostly because I've changed medication. Um so, you know, much less suicidal now, which is great. Yes. Um and I worry, like, I want to say, I want to say flat. And I'm worried that by saying that, the understanding that you will get will be, like, emotionless or, like, unhappy in oh, some way. Oh, no, because but my... When I say... No, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so, like, when I say flat, I mean, like, it's it's peaceful. It's a lot more peaceful now. Yep. Um, 
like kind of like if you think about like a flat green field Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's probably how i would describe my internal landscape Ooh. okay is there do you mind if we if we dig potentially a little bit deeper or explore the space is there like is there weather happening in this on this field is it just like would it be more like a painting or a picture of a field that it that exists or is it a place that you can go and like inhabit and walk around in and like there's you know like flowers like you know wildflowers or a stream or you know like the wind or you know like sun or whatever i would say it's more abstract than that okay um, the analogy to like a flat green field is more like that is the kind of it's a similar emotion Oh, okay. The okay. emotions I feel when I'm like when I'm out in nature. Gotcha. 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 Like, yes. 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 Field, yes. You're not hungry. You're not particularly tired. You're just like this is chill. This is a nice field. Okay. Like that is so my internal landscape. It's yeah. okay. So it's it's the well, which I guess is like you're doing the work of the haiku. It's like you have you have the external experience and the image, and then it it it's the emotion that's that's the through line between them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I I was gonna say that like when you when you said flat, I I instantly and totally understood what you meant because my own personal landscape <laughs> is like uh, prairie, you know like big open expanse of just maybe some minor hill you know like variance in elevation but essentially just this flat wide open space, um, which. I agree with you 100% of a of a level of like peacefulness or calmness or just like I don't know that there's like a it's like things feel like they're at rest like they're it's not it, you're not striving towards anything there's not this like energy that's being built up that has to go out it's just like like it's, it's like it's it's chill you're just you're in this space and it's it's chill and you're chill and you can just you can just be there um, hmm. Interesting. I haven't. I've, the people that I've asked, I don't think there's been another person that has had a as as close to a, a similar internal landscape as me than than you, <laughs> which is which is interesting. Okay. Which I wonder, like, because like the reason that I started asking this was that like I have a very clear idea of what my of what my internal landscape is, and it has informed and ex- explained and for me like a lot of things throughout that like in hindsight looking back on my life it's like oh okay this is this would make sense um and the the people that i've asked i've one of the reasons that i've asked is that i'm enamored that like i feel so much of my um like my po- my poetic process is a it's like a direct outpouring of sort of where i'm at internally in that landscape um and i've been really enamored with with trying to find or to see if there are parallels between like other poets internal landscapes and like the poetry that they produce um yeah and i'm i'm interested and i'm curious and i know that like correlation is not necessarily causation (laughs) but the fact that like we are both deep into like haiku both appreciation and and the creation of and our internal landscapes are you know at least ostensibly very you know, like there are similarities between the two of them. Um, and I wonder, like, just I'm idly wondering if if there is some intrinsic 
aspect of having a, a landscape that is that is like flat and like maybe expansive and relatively chill that would lend itself to haiku writing or a particular type of haiku writing maybe versus an internal landscape that is something else. But I suspect that often the interest in haiku and the desire to write haiku comes from a search for a degree of inner peace that you find in the kind of moments that are categorized by haiku. It's, um, Oh, okay. So the Marie Kondo Netflix special is out and her (laughs) book is there and, Yes. There's all this stuff in the English translation about sparking joy. Yes. And I suspect that's kind of a mistranslation of the kind of inner peace that exists within haiku. Oh. Like, it's like you want things that give you meaning. That, like, yeah. you can have, like, you know, your grandma's ashes and be like, this doesn't spark joy, <laughs> but it gives me meaning. Like, it gives a sense of solidity to my life. Like, it is meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, those kind of moments within haiku, like, they are they're peaceful like even if you're describing something very active like the snapshot the moment is like a step out of time almost that you've managed to capture in a haiku yeah like and that's that's peaceful and i think yeah if you get into haiku you're searching for that inner peace and as you continue to be into haiku you begin you can often begin to develop that yourself interesting i I I think I I think I agree with you cuz I definitely <laughs> like um hmm so I might like I agree with you but I might there might be an, a little bit of an extension that I that I might want to put forward that like at least for, for me when I when I write poetry it's it's a way of like um I describe it a lot of like emotional echolocation that it's a way for me to like suss out surroundings or kind of like figure things out figure things out in relation to me like i'm um poetry is very much for me it feels like i'm in a i'm like emotionally in a body in a physical space and how can i connect to the sort of like emotional space of you know like how can my internal emotional space connect and and be in conversation with like an external emotional space um so i wonder if at least for me, because like on the heels of discovering sort of my internal landscape is I think when I really started delving into haiku and I'm wondering if I was looking for some sort of like outward, um, maybe like a validation or like outward um, experience. It's like, oh, there are these things that exist outside of me that I can then draw into myself to try to understand like what the hell's going on in, inside of me. So I guess in that way, like, like you said, like looking, looking for, um, some sort of like larger sense of peace or like that external peace, peace. Um, but using it in an attempt to try to gain a language so that I could talk about what I feel is happening on the inside. Yeah. If that makes, I mean, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, like poetry is very personal, so it's difficult <laughs> to like um, do this kind of thing. But yeah, very much for me, it was about it's about finding finding that piece really. Like writing haiku was going like I I was talking about that um that haiku I wrote on the night where mm-hmm. my my friend was like coughing a lot and I was just like very stressed out by it. <laughs> like what I wanted to get was like to identify that while that was a very anxious situation. 
like there were good parts about it there were peaceful parts about it like there was an element where I was like at peace yeah even while I was very stressed and anxious and the fact that like that is sort of my underlying emotional state like bad things can happen I can get really stressed but ultimately like my internal landscape is flat yeah, it's like at at and the, is, at the core, it's yeah. At the core, it's like there can be this turmoil and stuff happening around you, but you have this like this anchor or Vancouverish rock, if you will, of just like <laughs> this this thing that allows you to maintain a sort of like even keelness or like like balance or equilibrium wherever it is that 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 exists for you. But like there's this thing that sort of keeps you keeps you in there. Um, interesting. I'm I'm really I mean aside from like just enjoying talking with you I'm really glad that that we got to talk because you've you've shed some light on some things that I'm going to need to spend the next like week or two just sitting thinking about um God I'm sorry it's been so long coming but we finally got there <laughs> Yes um okay so my last question for you is do you have a question for me it can be in, yeah. like any anything any ranging but go ahead Yeah how are you doing? You doing all right? Um, yes. I think that I am. Um, it's like most, um, I guess most immediately, um, still sort of dealing with, um, like my, my processing of like figuring out what I'm feeling about, um, as a result of, like Mary Oliver passing, um, mm. which is a really like, I was trying to figure it out. And I was talking to one of my, one of my friends at work um, on Friday that like, like I'm, I feel smallly sad, um, which is a feeling that I'm, a, I'm very accustomed to. Cause it's, it's a, a maneuver that I, I try to employ in my poetry a lot is to like, to convey these like, not big sadnesses, but these little small things that are like, you know, there's just a little bit of an extra weight to, to feel. Um, and I think that I'm like, I'm ultimately just sad that like, I will never, there will never be another new book or like new poem of hers that I get to read. Um, that like her her way of seeing things and her way of experiencing the world is like that's that doesn't exist in the world anymore in in a sense it's like but it also kind of does because she's written so much and there's so many people that that read her writing that have internalized you know like her words and her her vision and her sight um and her experiences so in that way that's like there are a bunch of little mary olivers that are sort of like all around in the world but like the the that sort of distilled down essence of hers. Like it's not, and in the, the biggest well that it had on earth, it's not there anymore. Um, and it's just like, it was also a weird thing. And that like, I don't, I'm not sure what it is that I feel about this. Um, aside from like sort of honor and, and humbleness that when um, some of my friends, like throughout the day, caught word that she had that she had passed um i was like the first person that they reached out to to express condolences to or to like to share in that you know like 
that that sadness and i'm like this is this is a weird thing because one of one of my friends um and bandmates um said that as soon like that i was the first person that they thought about when they heard that she had that she had died and i was like that's a that's a really weird thing to be the first person to be thought of in conjunction to like to mary oliver um so I, I don't like i'm i'm grateful that they reached out to me and i'm super appreciative of it but there's also this like there's some other there's another emotion that 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 exists underneath that that i don't have an image or or a language for right now that i'm still trying to parse out um but aside from that um i'm i'm doing pretty good um i'm i'm excited for some stuff like some books that i have coming out um this year with the press um I am like two poems away from finishing a manuscript that I'm I'm really excited about. Um, it doesn't it doesn't go as far as I think I'm eventually going to go, but it's the sort of beginnings of like exploring my relationship with my body as an agent or person in poetry, um, yeah. and the sort of like how do I deal with like being in a body that is very uh, decidedly like sexed when I internally feel like I have no connection to like like gendered and you know, like physical I, just that, that sort of like weird disconnect that I feel um, mm. that is not that is not like I don't think is as gets into the ballpark of like uh, dysmorphia but it's definitely like could explain some some just uncomfortableness that I feel or maybe not complete integration that I feel with with my body um which has been something that like has been a long struggle from like being a Christian and viewing the body as just essentially a like a vessel for the soul and that the soul is the thing that's me and the body is the thing that houses it to a more like no the body is like it's definitely part of this thing that makes me me and trying to like figure that out but then also coming in now into the sort of like minor conflicts of like, but I don't, I don't feel like I fit in a male body, but it's still my body. And how can I make that work for, I don't know. But, um, it's been, it's been something that I've, I've been thinking about for a while that finally sort of spilled out into poems that are ostensibly about birds that aren't really about birds that are <laughs> more about like my experiences with my body. Um, and, so that's like I'm I'm really excited to finish that collection and to get it revised and to get it out there because it's it's one of the the first times that I feel like I've written poetry that is like not ostensibly just some other white dude writing poetry. It's like it, it feels like it's 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 something that of value that I can offer to like a bigger conversation. Um yeah. which as a like a white person um and as a presenting as a a white male person um has been something that's like it's been difficult to to navigate of like is is the stuff that i'm writing like is there value in this or is it is it worth presenting to a a larger conversation or the larger um i don't know like context of poetry um but i feel like these poems at least begin to move in that direction so i'm i'm excited about that um I'm also excited that we're getting snow. I like snow. <laughs> I live next to a cemetery now, and it's just, it's really beautiful to see all of the like mausoleums and the um like the headstones and all the the random angels that are out there just like doused in snow. Um, 
But, yeah, it's, I'm like, I, I think that my, my sort of natural calibration or natural equilibrium is around like neutral, but lately it's been feeling like it's a, it's a more, um, like peaceful neutral. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. so, but yeah. As opposed to chaotic neutral, of course. Yes. Or uh, lawful <laughs> neutral. Um, <laughs> um, but thank you for asking. I, I appreciate you asking. Um, That's really cool. How does how does it feel to be a doctor? How does it feel to introduce yourself as as Doctor Fritz? Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Um, it's I've sort of been saying that the biggest thing that I think I've really got from my PhD is a much better sense of self confidence, mm-hmm. like. I feel I'm confident in the fact that I'm really smart <laughs> um, and I no longer feel like I have to prove that because I have, I've got a PhD. Oh. I've done the proving. Um, oh, that's wonderful. I've been surprised by how, like not how many doors it's opened, but by how much easier it's made it to relate to academics. So I was working on a piece, um, mm for work just about like technology mm-hmm. uh calling some academics in the field and just chatting to them and you know they'll be like oh you're a doctor as well like yeah of course like we'll chat and then at the end i'll be like so my background's in this and i'll be like oh that's really cool like so because um often if i'm talking about technology i don't fucking know how computers work <laughs> what um and so at the end i'll be like oh this is what my background is in and people be like oh another scientist that was really cool and would you really like have a better relationship simply from the fact that I have a science PhD, which on one hand is kind of bullshit society. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, like, it's really nice on a personal level. <laughs> like, I hate that it's done that. I hate that the world works in a way that, like, having a science PhD means that other people with science PhDs find it easier to relate to me and respect me more as a result. Yeah. But I love that it means they respect me more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I feel like as, as a, like, a woman in like the science community you know like that's i feel like that respect is a is a very hard fought and hard won thing to get um yeah so like so being again like feminine female presenting um like it's i mean it's much better in uh at, at Deloitte like honestly so much better being feminine there and also like genuinely being non-binary there like I mm. I don't think I ever mentioned that I was non-binary to my PhD supervisors because I wanted them to like me and I was terrified that they'd reject me if I did that mm-hmm. um, but you know and that's that's one of the benefits of having the title doctor right is it's gender neutral I'm just yes. like what's up yep what's my gender no one knows <laughs> indeterminate um, <laughs> Uh, and coming out at work is just like the easiest thing. Like I was really scared the first few times because generally I was working on gender equity initiatives, which at the time were referred to as women's initiatives. And Mm. I would just sort of take the person running it aside and be like, Hey, so I'm non-binary. And if you want this to be a true women's initiative, it's probably not for me. Um, but if you want to do something more inclusive, can I suggest a gender equity initiative? And generally, like, you know, the partner or the director that I was talking to would be like, yeah, absolutely. Like, would would love to have a gender equity initiative. Oh, that's fantastic. Like, 
if you want to like help us with you know making sure our language is more inclusive would really appreciate your time on that or if you don't have the time like if you could suggest people that would be really really great um, holy shit that's awesome <laughs> yeah i i've been overwhelmed by how supportive work has been <laughs> like and really surprised and i think it's very it's very weird being you know sort of a a corporate queer um i was at a event for midsummer which is melbourne's um lgbtq festival mm-hmm. um i was at a midsummer event yesterday and i felt like you know i felt like i was the machine that everyone was raging against i was like <laughs> oh god <laughs> like i am i'm the suit in the room like i don't know how this happened because <laughs> i've always just kind of been like disaster queer um and i turned up and i'm like man like i am i'm probably the person here with like the most stable job like the most you know sort of in the class structure Australian has like the most middle class. Um, but to a large extent, like I only exist like that firstly, like, because I have, you know, pretty minimal body dysmorphia. So I can just like exist and be feminine presenting and just kind of be like, not a woman whenever someone includes me in that stuff. Um, Mm. but also because like, I have been so extremely lucky and like, it's weird to talk about a corporation as having its heart in the right place, but genuinely Deloitte Australia, Deloitte Asia Pack, and specifically my office here in Melbourne does like they, they will occasionally not think about things. And then as soon as I mention something, they're like, Oh, of course they will change that. Like no questions asked. Like we, we want you to be happy. We want you to feel safe. Like your like happiness is the most important thing to us. And from a very like mercenary capitalist perspective, that's because I do better work when I'm happy. Um, but existing as an individual within that system is just so like joyful, really. Yeah. Like it's so nice. <laughs> yeah. So one, I'm sorry for the, the misgendering. Um, and two, it's like, I feel like that's like you were getting a, I don't know it's like that's that's what every like why that's what every place should be that like that you could that you could walk into work and they could that you feel like you're that you are valued as for who you are and that your opinion and your voice in matters like matter that yeah that you that you could go to a supervisor and be like hey you know this is this feels a little like non-inclusive or maybe like non-intersectional can you is there something we could do to change it like yeah of course yes let's do it like we'll get right on that um, but also I feel like your positioning in, in the corporate world, you could begin to work to dismantle it from the inside out. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, there's a lot more influence we can have as consultants yeah. and like, even in my position as being like relatively junior in the consulting world, I can have more influence or at least I feel like I can have more influence on you know, the structures that exist in other companies and companies that hire us and mm-hmm. various groups that we work with than I ever could have as like a, you know, postdoc, just postdocing. Yeah. Uh, um, and like we're, the other thing as well, of course, is like we're valued for what we contribute to the company. And so me spending time like talking to people about gender and how to be inclusive in their language and how to set up like, um, so we have a really, really good um women's leadership uh, program within Deloitte. And I've been talking to some people in HR about just like tweaking that language to make the 
sure that like non-binary people like me know whether they're eligible or not very clearly because <laughs> uh... like one of my biggest issues is like I'll see a thing for women and I'm assigned female at birth and I'm feminine presenting and like everyone just always fucking assumes I'm a woman so good life um no no offense sorry like you're you're fine <laughs> and I always have to reach out to that group and be like hey I'm non-binary. This is how I present. Am I still eligible for your program? Will you actively misgender me if I apply? Right. Um, And so like what I really want to do, like, and something I can do internally is start to tweak those programs. So it's clear so that it's the onus isn't on the non-binary on the trans feminine person on the trans masculine person to go out and say specifically to do the hard yards, essentially to be like, do I belong in the system you have set up to increase gender equity? Because we should. Um, and like, that's, that's fantastic, but also like that's treated as part of my job. Like that's valuable to the company that I do that. Whereas in academia, I overwhelmingly got the feeling that everything I did for women in STEM, everything I did for any kind of gender equity thing was taking me away from my more meaningful work. And like, Uh... yeah, drug discovery for diseases that don't have any medication right now is really, really important. Like I don't want to downplay that at all. Right. But also making sure that the scientists who'll be really good at that feel like they belong and can have a career in science is also important. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not that, that one is more important or maybe it's like they're, they're both important, but in, in different sort of directions. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that you were in a position and you work, you're in a position that you can affect like meaningful change for these things. And I'm glad that you are working within a corporate environment that, that, like seems to to value and seems to be working itself kind of like towards in that direction. Um, that's, that's awesome. That's, I've mentioned that that's a, that's a really, that like all of the, all the additional stress and anxiety that could, that could go into working in an, in a environment that you are unsure of, like if you can come out or if you, if you can like just be yourself in, in this yeah. space has is largely you know like it's not not present yeah yeah no it's it's really fantastic and it's it's nice because like there are people in um our hr equivalent who've like reached out to me and just been like hey like if you ever want to talk about anything like we're here for you like we wow want to pick your brains about how to talk about gender and like we really value the fact that you'll do that for us but also like if you need anything about your gender, about your experience at work. Like, we've got you. And so there's like this incredible amount of support. Like I had some um, health issues uh, in the middle of last year that were also an issue during my PhD. And like, that was kind of the point where I realized that I love my job um, is because when I'd had health issues during my PhD, the first question I got asked was whether I'd still finish my thesis. Oh, um, Jesus. And at Deloitte, the first question I got asked was what, what they could do for me, yeah. like how they could help me. I was just kind of like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, I am the most junior person in the corporation. Like, you know, I've just been hired and you value me this much. Yeah. And the response that I got when I sort of mentioned that to people was like, yeah, of course we do. Like, who who doesn't value people this much? <laughs> I was like, oh, academia is real bad. Huh? <laughs> well, I feel like that's a... Um a pleasant or a pleasant surprise of a very uplifting note to, to end this podcast on. Um, so I thank you so much for, for talking with me. This is, this is an amazing way to spend a Saturday night for me. I, what, this is like midday Sunday for you. 
It sure is. Um, but I, like seriously, and in all in all genuineness, I'm I'm so grateful that we that we got to talk today because this, this is this is one of the you were one of the guests that I've been wanting to to have on for a really really long time, and I'm I'm very glad that I can I can cross your name off off of my list. I'm so sorry it's taken so long. <laughs> oh, it's okay. But that's it's like I like I have a I have a friend who's going who's working through a PhD. Um, and I've seen significantly less of him since he's been like going through the PhD program. So I, I'm, I totally understand that like you're all of most of your, well, I probably the vast majority of your energy and your attention was focused, <laughs> was very much focused elsewhere. Um, mm. but I'm just, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad that we got to talk, especially yeah. that we got to talk about haiku. I've been, I've been really itching to talk haiku with someone. Um, <laughs> good. I'm glad. Um, but, uh, I think that'll do it. Uh, thank you everyone for, uh, for listening and for continually, uh, seeking out this podcast. Um, I'll talk to y'all later.